Welcome back to OBS and Guidelines. This week we discuss polycystic ovarian syndrome. We go through the International Evidence-Based Guideline for the Assessment and Management of PCOS 2018, which is published by the ESHRE uh, and is often just referred to as the Monash Guideline. This guideline replaces the RANSCOG CGUIN 26, Long-Term Health Consequences of PCOS. The order of the our show today, we'll introduce PCOS, we'll go through the pathophysiology in, you know, briefly, we'll also go through the differential diagnosis of hyperandrogenism and the basic workup, because PCOS, while the most common uh, cause for hyperandrogenism in females, is also a diagnosis of exclusion, though it does have criteria that we'll go through. Uh, then we'll go through kind of five main sections of the international guideline, um, which is how the way it's been organized, and then we'll summarize uh, the kind of clinical relevance or the, the key concepts. So to introduce uh, PCOS um, and the guideline, go with the guidelines, uh, there's no actual definition given in the guideline of what PCOS is. Uh, instead, uh, it just mentions that PCOS is one of the most common conditions in reproductive aged women, affecting 18 to 13% of reproductive aged women with up to 70% of affected women remaining undiagnosed. The presentation varies by ethnicity and uh, in different uh, populations, such as indigenous women, and the prevalence is higher in, in those populations. Now, women with PCOS present with, a diverse feature, with diverse features, including psychological, reproductive, and metabolic features, and the diagnosis and treatment remains controversial uh, with challenges in all of those individual components. The five key areas of recommendations. Uh, number one, screening, diagnostic assessment, and risk assessment in the life stage. Uh, two, prevalence, screening, diagnostic assessment, and management of, endo, of, of emotional well-being. Three, lifestyle management and models of care. Four, medical management and five, screening, diagnostic assessment, and management of infertility. Caitlin, do you want to go through the pathophysiology? I'd love to. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think you probably understand it a bit better than I do. That's confusing. So I guess the fundamental thing is that um, PCOS, while polycystic ovarian is in the name, it's actually an endocrine diagnosis and an endocrine abnormality of which polycystic ovaries may or may not be a feature. And the fundamental endocrine abnormality is raised ovarian androgens. Um, the high level of androgens then results in mul well, may result in multiple ovarian follicle um, formation and po the polycystic appearance that we see on ultrasound. Um, so we know that GnRH um, has pulsatile release. It's about every 90 minutes. And then LH is released in response to this. Estrogen then resets the frequency of the release. So if you have consistent um, sort of low to medium levels of estrogen, the LH surge won't be high enough to cause ovulation. LH stimulates theca cells on the developing follicle to produce androgens. The androgens are then converted to estrogen by stimulation in the granulosa cells by FSH. This estradiol is then what feeds back to the pituitary to inhibit FSH secretion. Uh, the high level of androgens results in multiple ovarian follicle formation and the polycystic appearance of the ovary. Uh, however, over 60% of patients with PCOS have normal LH levels, um, and in some women we find decreased levels of sex hormone binding globulin. 
in these women, um, ovarian androgen production might actually be normal, but with the less of the sex hormone binding globulin around, uh, the level of the active free hormone in the circulation or active free androgens is increased, uh, which can lead to the clinical signs of androgen excess. So while overall levels are the same, there's more free androgens. I think that refers to often that when you do a testosterone test, you often get, I think, a total. and mm. It's the free testosterone that's, uh, you yeah, so the unbound testosterone that's actually free to bind to receptors and causes the clinical effect. And so unless you measure that, then you could be misled into thinking that the testosterone is normal. Yeah, exactly. And um, we also know that high BMI leads to decreased sex hormone binding globulin. And so it, obesity exacerbates um, PCOS in this way as well and can have its own um, have its own effects of clinical hyperandrogenism. Uh, we also see raised insulin levels, um, although this is I think we talk about this later that's not worth testing um, in terms of a diagnostic test but um, insulin augments the activity of uh, LH as well um, and sort of adding into this obese women are also more likely to have insulin um, resistance as well there can also be extra ovarian production of androgens um, so these are this is sort of as an aside, this is not um, related to PCOS. So in conditions like congenital adrenal hyperplasia, Cushing's androgen-secreting tumours and steroid abuse, um, and we'll talk about that in our differential as well. All right, so the differential diagnosis of hyperandrogenism and its workup. Um, so I guess there's a various ways that uh, PCOS ends up being diagnosed, um, but I guess wherever the, the workup is being being performed, um, it's worth doing a, kind of a baseline set of investigations to look for alternative causes. So other disorders that account for less than 15% of hyperandrogenism but are important to exclude would be non-classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia, hyperprolactinemia, Cushing syndrome, and of course an ovarian or adrenal neoplasm. Um, so baseline investigations should include a serum total testosterone. And this needs to be done off of hormonal contraception for two to three months, which is commonly quite a difficult um, thing to actually arrange. Um, because I guess we would usually be seeing women with menstrual disturbances, so often they've already, they're already on a hormonal contraceptive. Mm. Um, and then, as we'll go into a bit later, you're often trying to get onto some form of hormonal contraception uh, for endometrial protection. But alas, if you're trying to get this diagnosis, uh, that's an important thing to consider like when interpreting your testosterone level. You have to prove mm, that you've yeah. got the condition before you can have the treatment, and yeah, that involves a bit with, of pain. Um, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like and bleeding disorders, mm. um, you know, need to should be off NSAIDs and uh, contraception when you're. And then, of course, you get heavy bleeding. Mm. So <laughs> I don't know if it ever gets really done properly. Um, so then, like I mentioned, try to do a free testosterone um, if the total testosterone is normal or there is moderate to severe hirsutism or there's evidence of other hyperandrogenergic disorder. So this is basically, if you think there's PCOS, you do your testosterone and it comes back normal, then that's not quite compatible with PCOS unless it's because of the increased uh, sex hormone binding globulin. So that's what it's saying to do, do your free testosterone if it's normal, or if there's other features that really make you, you know, suspicious that there is another cause as opposed to PCOS. But otherwise, I think the free testosterone is more expensive to do, so it's not 
part of your first line investigations. But you should, um, for your baseline investigations, also do a screen of uh, non-hyperandrogenergic causes of anovulation. So exclude pregnancy with a beta HCG, do a prolactin, FSH and LH, um, a TSH, and consider chronic renal disease. So do a full blood count to exclude anemia and a metabolic panel, checking the creatinine eusinase. Um, a mid-luteal progesterone may theoretically be used to confirm an ovulation, but it's pretty difficult if the cycle is irregular. Um, there's different methods of doing that, but some suggestions have been to uh, go from kind of two weeks after the last period and then weekly. Um, you can also do a fasting lipid profile, which is important for the uh, cardiovascular uh, workup, and an HbA1c or uh, oral glucose tolerance test um, to diagnose metabolic syndrome or diabetes. If the serum testosterone level is high, and uh, I think an up-to-date is where I got my numbers from, um, but I think it varies by different places, but I got 5.2 nanomoles per liter, then you should be evaluating for an ovarian or adrenal neoplasm. So that's going to involve a uh, pelvic ultrasound. Um, if the ultrasound doesn't show basically an ovarian tumor or hypothecosis, then you should do a CT looking for an adrenal secreting tumor. Um, now, if you do a DHEA or DHEAS, and this just depends on the lab, then an elevated one will point you towards an adrenal neoplasm. So if that's significantly elevated, and it can be falsely elevated or elevated for other reasons, but if it is significantly elevated, it would push you more towards um, doing that CT of the adrenals. But again, I think like the pelvic ultrasound is such a standard um, component of, of any gynecological workup. You're going to do that first. You don't expose to radiation, and if you find a whopping big tumor there, mm -hmm. then you can fix that first. Um, if the serum testosterone is normal, also consider non-classical uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. I think this is very uncommon, but I guess always a possibility. Um, you can screen for it with a morning 17 OHP. Um, I think at that stage, while there are suggestions of uh, further tests you can do, I'd be referring to endocrinology at that <laughs> stage, unless you were kind of experienced. That's outside my brain. Yeah, yeah. And then Cushing syndrome should also be um, considered, um, but I think that's it's more of a clinical diagnosis or at least will lead you towards that. So you, you should have your kind of um, phenotypic features of Cushing's. Um, and the test for that is a 24-hour urine cortisol. So that's quite a comprehensive set of your baseline investigations. And arguably, um, you sort of have an initial lot of baseline investigations and then sort of when you're looking for your more weird and wonderfuls, um, sort of as a more second line and that's your Cushing's and things as well once you've excluded yeah so 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 they get a baseline is going to be your total testosterone your screening like non-androgens um and then your metabolic workup yeah, basically yeah. so the 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 additional um scans and uh 17 ohp and things so basically if you've got a high like a pathologically high uh, testosterone that's not that's going to point you towards something else or other clinical features yeah. It's, it kind of feels a bit weird talking about the tests before we've sort of talked about the history and examination, but that's um, the way the guideline does it as well. Um, when when you've got women presenting with uh, clinical signs of hyperandrogenism, um, these are the the tests that you would do um, before then making your diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome. So um, I guess, Sam, do you think move on to talking about the screening diagnostic assessment 
um, and risk assessment. Yep. Um, so this is sort of the first... So that's, that's the first... Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's all, you... all right. Great minds. Go on. <laughs> this is sort of the first uh, main main section in the guideline. Um, and if you are looking at the guideline, um, a really good way to read it is to start with the algorithms. So start sort of page 193, um, which is algorithm one, and it goes through the different algorithms. And then um, if there's any points that you feel need more clarification, the guideline itself, so the remaining 190 pages, um, as you can imagine, go into some fairly... Uh, good depth about the different points and also about the evidence behind each of these points. Um, but in terms of day-to-day uh, use or potentially exam study, I would be studying um, and going through the algorithms to begin with. Um, so algorithm... Yeah, those first kind of 10 pages will not give you anything <laughs> useful like that. that. If that's where your concentration goes... Then if you've you only got 10 pages in your head, skip. start at 193. Yeah, start at page 193. <laughs> work your way backwards. <laughs> Um, so Sam, um, how, how, what does the diagnosis of PCOS entail? How do you diagnose polycystic ovarian syndrome? So both this guideline and the Ranscott guideline say to use the Rotterdam criteria. So that's the kind of international uh, consensus criteria. Um, and those, that is basically two of three. Have we actually written it down? No, I do, I do know. So <laughs> one is an, an ovulation, which is effectively irregular menstrual cycles. Um, it goes into detail about what exactly constitutes an irregular uh, menstrual cycle. Um, you also then need biochemical or clinical features of hyperandrogenism or ultrasound findings. So so those are the, your three components. You need two of the three to meet the Rotterdam criteria. You do not need all three. Um, and also importantly, one of these alone doesn't give you the diagnosis. And most importantly, that is the ultrasound findings. Mm-hmm. So a polycystic ovarian appearing ovary or even a polycystic ovary does not constitute the syndrome. And I mean, I think that's probably most important in the context that many women will have a scan in adolescence, which is a time when it's very normal to both have irregular periods and also to have uh, polycystic appearing ovaries. And everybody who hears that they've had that (laughs) diagnosis and that fertility might be a problem seems to interpret that as I will never have children. Mm. And that goes for, I was reminded of, of this um, being really careful with your words, how even though the words we say to patients are often you know, technically correct, the way that's interpreted and remembered is often a bit different. And my mum just recently said to me, oh, I had a friend whose daughter was in hospital with an ectopic. You said that was always caused by chlamydia. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, no, so what that's i was like i'm absolutely sure i did not say that Mm. (laughs) but i may have said chlamydia is a risk factor for an ectopic pregnancy (laughs) but that just showed again like how that helps somebody an educated person who you know could you know remember what i said and interpret it and remember it in a different way so i think you just got to be very very careful um if you're you know doing a scan if you get a result to you know you do have to be upfront and honest about what the result is but if you mention, if, you know, even if your words are there might be a problem with fertility or something, I think it is important to you know highlight that this does not mean you will never become pregnant, mm. and you know, mm. also you know you need contraception. What you say and what um, people hear can be two very different it. things. Yeah, unfortunately. So that's but this one's always like a real classic one in my mind because it does feel like so many women have the diagnosis of PCOS and don't, you know, they've never been one worked up for it, haven't 
you know, had any management um, put in place. Mm. And also the diagnosis is often, you know, incorrect or, or premature. Mm. Um, so, and there are actually, yeah. so the four, those, those three criteria uh, lead to four different phenotypes, um, A, B, C, and D, helpfully, um, with phenotype A being all three. So androgen excess, ovulatory dysfunction, and polycystic ovarian morphology on ultrasound. B is just androgens and ovulation. C, androgens and ovaries. D, ovulation and ovaries. Um, this is probably more uh, for research purposes because for all women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, you are going to manage them by mitigating their risk factors and managing complications. Um, but sort of just as an aside, like you say, you don't need all three, but you can have all three and different combinations presumably are going to lead to different um, different risks and phenotypes. It would make a wonderfully unfair exam question. <laughs> <laughs> Probably for the written. Yeah, if it's going to be unfair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. We can laugh about that. It's behind yeah. us. <laughs> right. So where are we up to? So we've done the Rotterdam criteria going through. You've already, um, so, I mean, diagnosing irregular menstrual cycles, um, yeah, it goes into detail about irregularity, but sort of less than 21 to more yeah. than 45 days. Um, well, it depends on your life, life stage as well. Yeah, but yeah, not within the first year, year of menarche. Yeah. Um, expect them to be more irregular for the first few years after that. Mm. After three years, they should be a bit closer, but still they're basically between 21 and 35 day cycle is still normal. Um, but otherwise it says less than eight cycles per year uh, kind of meets the definition um, and also if you go more than 90 days in any one cycle mm. um, but basically just I think in, a, in an adolescent uh, just be very very careful and probably go back to the definitions before you diagnose an ovulation um, in terms of biochemical hyperandrogenism we've been through your differentials and the different tests you need to order um, and that's all really nicely laid out in the guideline as well. In terms of clinical hyperandrogenism, um, this will involve a comprehensive history and physical exam, um, and the signs that we're looking for are acne, alopecia, and hirsutism. Um, and it's just sort of, as an aside, important to note that what women report as unwanted excess hair growth or alopecia is important, regardless of what you see and judge to be important clinically. Um, I would also uh, just sort of make a note here that different ethnicities have uh, different normal distributions of hair growth anyway. And so there's a mod modified Ferriman-Galway score um, for hirsutism that can be used. But just remember that women uh, self-treat if they find hair growth to be a problem. Um, and so it is also important to ask about it. But be careful not to ask about it in a judgmental way. Um, some women don't mind hair growth embrace their hair growth and it's not an issue at all um, for them so sort of phrasing it and making sure that it's in a, in a medical way and saying you know it can be a sign of increased androgens this is why I need to know this um, do you think it's increased rather than do you find it to be a problem necessarily is probably something just to think about before you jump in and say it hey uh, do you want to tell us about ultrasound findings <laughs> the ever-changing world of how many follicles you're allowed on an ultrasound 
Yeah, so I guess over time, ultrasound transducers have improved. That's just, I guess, the um, kind of imaging technology behind it. And so what constituted a, a polycystic ovary in the past uh, no longer passes muster. And that's basically because there were bigger follicles. Uh, you couldn't see the small ones. And so I think from memory, um, was it 12 was, was enough in an ovary yeah. to yeah. call it polycystic? Now it's, now it's basically over 20 follicles. So this is in the context of a transvaginal ultrasound with a high-quality probe that includes 8 megahertz, um, over 20 follicles, or an ovarian volume over 10 mil with no corpus lutea, cysts, or dominant follicles. That's the requirement for a polycystic ovary. Um, using older technology, it says to just you just need to really have an ovarian volume of 10 mils um, or more, either ovary. So, um, and the, the reason it mentions the not having a corpus luteum or, um, or cysts or dominant follicles is obviously if you do have a simple cyst in the ovary, it's going to increase its volume. So you can't base the volume on that. That needs to be resolved. So do another scan if needed. Um, but you just to highlight again, just because you have that feature doesn't give you the syndrome. Um, polycystic ovarian syndrome can also be um, diagnosed postmenopausally, although this is rare. Um, probably the m- most of the time when I've made that diagnosis postmenopausally, it's in the context of trying to work someone up for their risk factors for endometrial hyperplasia. Um, so just going back through their menstrual history um, and whether or not they had any clinical or potentially um, biochemical evidence of hyperandrogenism. Um, if there is a new onset severe or worsening hyperandrogenism, then it is very important to rule out an androgen-secreting tumour or ovarian hypothecosis. Um, new signs postmenopausally are rare. Um, I guess the only other thing to add with adolescence is you cannot diagnose polycystic ovarian syndrome um, with ultrasound within eight years of menarche. So that's basically all adolescence. Um, but you can identify young women at risk and you should identify young women at risk and follow them up um, as we're about to talk about the various um, complications and risks associated with polycystic ovarian syndrome. So they should not be um, lost to follow up. But essentially, teenagers have acne, teenagers have anovulatory cycles, teenagers can have delayed menarche and polycystic ovaries are common on ultrasound as a teenager. Therefore, how are you going to diagnose it? You can't. No, but I suppose you're still going to introduce your lifestyle uh, modification factors if they are needed. Yeah. And you don't want them and waiting for 15 years to, you know, try for fertility and then it being, you know, more difficult. So you want to yeah. keep those things in mind. Cool. So there are other screening considerations that should be, should kind of go part and parcel with the diagnosis of PCOS. Um, again, you wouldn't do these in adolescence, um, uh, but the conditions of note would be cardiovascular disease. So you're going to make uh, an assessment by monitoring uh, weight uh, and waist, waist circumference and calculate BMI and assess other risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So smoking, dyslipidemia, hypertension, uh, glucose intolerance, and uh, lack of physical activity or a sedentary lifestyle. Annual BP measurements uh, should be performed and uh, some form of, I guess, primary care assessment of cardiovascular risk uh, status, like a tool, should be used. Mm So it mentions just that there are ethnic differences um, that contribute to your risk assessment. I think that's fairly well well done in New Zealand in terms of Māori and Pacific and Indian uh, people being at higher risk and therefore being screened at an earlier age. Yes. 
Uh, so in, when it comes to diabetes, uh, regardless of age, the prevalence is increased in certain ethnicities. So the guideline mentions um, Asian populations being five times higher risk, uh, the America population four times higher risk, and three times for European. It's obviously going to be a bit different in New Zealand. It suggests measuring uh, glycemic status at, at baseline, so an HbA1c or OGTT, and they're repeating one to three yearly, presumably depending on the results and risk. Um, and then uh, when it comes to kind of uh, pre-pregnancy counselling, uh, an OGTT um, should be performed uh, pre-pregnancy, uh, and if not done, then an early pregnancy mm. because of a higher risk of GDM. Um, and I guess it's worth mentioning, I can't remember if you said this already, Sam, um, but the risk of diabetes is independent of obesity. So the slim polycystic ovarian woman with diabetes, that, that's a, a classic phenotype, um, and in particular for these women in pregnancy as well. The risk is exacerbated by obesity. So if you have polycystic ovaries, ovarian syndrome and you're obese, your risk is much higher. Yeah, I think when it comes to diabetes screening and pregnancy, my basically memory is that unless you have zero risk factors, <laughs> then you need to be kind of screened aggressively. Yeah, I mean, in, in this, so the only yeah. the um, threshold is different across New Zealand and Australia as well. Um, yeah, whether it should or shouldn't be is a topic for another day. Um, yeah, but yeah, bear that in mind. Okay, um, so then you also need to screen for OSA. Uh, so there are. Uh, different scoring tools and things that can be used for that. Um, so uh, different screening questionnaires. Um, but presumably the, the kind of first question component of that would just be that has anybody ever reported uh, that you snore? Mm. Um, and you can uh, work from there. Uh, and then endometrial cancer, that risk is higher in the context of PCOS and also uh, follows um, ethnic uh, risk factors. Uh, in New Zealand, uh, Polynesian people are more than five times uh, risk of endometrial cancer compared with the general population and Māori uh, three times higher risk. Uh, so there is a low threshold for investigation, though you don't need to routinely investigate for endometrial cancer. Mm. But if you had any abnormal bleeding, uh, then you're going to do your, your basically yeah, low threshold for investigating the cause of that and I guess getting endometrial sampling in addition to imaging. Mm -hmm. There is no known optimal um, regime for prevention and protection of the endometrium and um, the pragmatic approach that they mention is a combined uh, oral contraceptive pill and um, provided there are no other contraindications or progestin therapy for women with cycles of more than 90 days and how I phrase that with women is you need to have a period every three months um, if you're trying for a baby then obviously they're not wanting um, hormonal contraception and in fact if they're having only having a bleed every three months we should be helping them anyway um, but just induce like a 10-day course of oral Provera or Primalute would be sufficient. The second section in the guideline is uh, the prevalence screening, diagnostic assessment and management of emotional well-being. Uh, this is not something that as gynecologists we do as much of, we should probably do more, um, but it's quite nice to have a section that just emphasises that PCOS does have an adverse impact on quality of life. Um, and that personal perceptions and priorities for care should be considered in order to improve patient outcomes. There's a high prevalence of moderate to severe anxiety and depression, at least in adults and probably in adolescents, and that routine screening should be performed in these women 
um, with further assessment or referral depending on regional guidelines and that can just be in the form of a couple of quick questions and then if that's positive a formal assessment questionnaire. Psychological therapy or pharmacological treatment can be given if indicated. Um, I would feel that that's outside my scope um, and would refer on to appropriate specialists as needed. Um, it's important to avoid inappropriate treatment if there are lifestyle modifications or specific factors that can be addressed um, to, to ameliorate the symptoms, so treating the cause. Um, and it's important to be careful with the use of agents in treating uh, depression and anxiety that can exacerbate polycystic ovarian syndrome symptoms, um, in particular weight gain. Depression and anxiety are common. Mm. They're more common in people with yeah. uh, PCOS. And even if you don't feel like there's much you may be able to do or offer you know, within your skill set, sometimes just being the first person to actually address it or just in your role as a uh, health professional uh, talking about it um, could be really helpful and might be the most helpful component of your consultation. Eating disorders are also more prevalent um, and if that is suspected it's important to refer and treat as per your local guidelines. Um, you can start with an initial screening question such as you know, does your weight affect the way you feel about yourself or are you satisfied with your eating patterns um, and then again if this is positive refer on um, or sort of screen more, screen more closely and then refer on. Um, and just sort of as an, as an aside, it's important within this that information should be culturally appropriate um, and tailored to the woman in front of you or the person in front of you. It's important to promote self-care and use a respectful and empathetic approach. Um, it does nobody any good telling people that just telling people they need to lose weight or telling them that they're overweight. You need to phrase things really carefully and uh, use phrases like um, incorporating joyful movement into your life. Um, and if people are happy and engaging then using um sort of limited lifestyle interventions things like replacing um you know fizzy drinks with fizzy water and then you know flavored fizzy water and then fizzy water with with water you know there are small there are small things that can be done um and again just making sure that you've got the correct diagnostic criteria for whatever you know whatever you're dealing with anxiety depression that kind of thing um, and screen appropriately for comorbidities this is something that should be done um, in a specialist setting uh, if the screening results are positive so just make sure that the screening is done and then people can be referred on as necessary really shows that this is such a uh you know, a complex condition there's just there's so much information and so much risk in some ways it's a it could be a very scary um, diagnosis to be given uh, if you are you know matter of fact um, with all the risks um, and things that need to be done and but I guess on the other hand you're also at risk of um, being very blase about this common diagnosis where often you don't have these uh, other conditions or at least they haven't kind of evolved at that stage so I guess you just have to go with what the you know the patient in front of you and the relationship you have, and it probably all just needs to be in bite-sized chunks over time. So follow-ups will be the, one of the more important components of how to manage uh, PCOS. We're on to algorithm three now. So um, again, this one's sort of more of a, a holistic care approach, uh, lifestyle management and models of care. The mainstay of management for polycystic ovarian syndrome is uh, is actually lifestyle interventions. 
So, um, and it's all the, it's the same stuff. Was it same soup, just reheated? It's diet and exercise, maintaining a normal BMI, and then doing things like managing the hyperandrogenism, managing menstrual disturbance, and assessing and treating any complications. Um, we know that lifestyle interventions, when done well, are effective. Um, women, well, we should tell people that the goals are achievable. Things like a 5 to 10% weight loss gives significant clinical improvement, um, including significant changes to risk. Like trying to you know, find the kind of positive spins in it. So you know, if you've got this diagnosis and there are some risk factors at play, then this is a good excuse to make those lifestyle changes that we all know that we should do. But um, sometimes think, well, other I'm not motivated enough, but now I've actually you know, got a doctor here telling me I'm at risk of you know, developing all these other horrible things, you know, now's the time to, you know, make some lifestyle changes mm. and, you know, get the whanau involved and things mm. with that. And if you've got access to a health psychologist um, in where you work, this would be a really awesome um, person to have involved um, in the multidisciplinary care of people with polycystic ovarian syndrome because it is things like goal setting, um, stimulus control, problem solving, um, and then relapse prevention, um, which can be really hard and demotivating as well when women or when people have done well with weight loss um, and then, you know, something happens, grief reaction, whatever, and they wind up with, with a relapse in terms of eating habits or exercise habits. Um, and comprehensive CBT yeah, can also be considered. Yeah, I think using the MDT um, you know, is always helpful, but um, it's just especially helpful for getting information across mm. because I think that um, in the, around doctors, patients tend to uh, less, be less forthcoming with their questions and uh, understanding. Um, and it's often only, you know, when you leave and they talk to the nurse or the physiotherapist or, you know, some other health professional that, you know, the extra detail and uh, questions come out. So you, know, you might you know, do your absolute best, but just the fact that your role, you know, as a doctor sometimes limits, uh, I think, what you can get across and the honesty of the interaction you can have. Yeah. So it's always going to be helpful to get anybody else involved um, who can talk about other components of it to really drive the message home and, and support that patient. And I think it's really helpful as well to empathize that it is hard. Um, weight loss as somebody with polycystic ovarian syndrome is so much harder than, um, than without having, it's almost like your body's working against you. Um, so empathizing with that, but then also not using it as an excuse um, to not do it, rather use it as motivation to continue and carry on sort of back into the the gynecology nitty-gritty part of it arguably <laughs> um algorithm four is uh, pharmacological treatment for non-fertility indications um so we've sort of been through the fact that polycystic ovarian syndrome puts you at an increased risk of a raft of metabolic um conditions um but there are also some specific um risks that can be mitigated with pharmacology um, it's important that people know the benefits, side effects, contraindications to certain medications. And even though this is talking about non-fertility indications, it's important to have an idea of people's fertility wishes um, so that that can be incorporated into the plan that you make. The combined oral contraceptive pill should be recommended in adult women um, and adolescents at risk for polycystic ovarian syndrome uh, for people who have hyperandrogenism and or irregular menstrual cycles. There's no specific dose, type of progesterone or estrogen um, that can be recommended. 
but they do make a specific note that the pill with 35 micrograms of estrogen with cyproterone is not first line in polycystic ovarian syndrome because of the VTE risk. Um, just as you're prescribing the combined pill for everybody, um, different pills, different combinations have different side effects. Um, so people should know that it might be worth trying one for three to six months, seeing if it works, then trying another if it doesn't. Um, it's important to identify, as you would for anybody, the specific risk factors like BMI, hyperlipidemia and hypertension as contraindications to the combined pill. Um, and they can be considered, addressed, potentially mitigated, and then um, the combined pill may or may not be able to be prescribed. Uh, you can also consider um, natural estrogen preparations. Um, and we, as always, try and use the lowest effective dose. Uh, and just balance what works, the metabolic risk profile, as well as cost and availability, which has become more of an issue post-2020 than I've ever seen it before. <laughs> uh, but that would be your first line is the combined pill. Depending on what the uh, most concerning feature is, whether it's um, hirsutism or anovulation or, or whatever, um, will determine what your goals for treatment are and then whether or not it works. So um, you'd usually try a combined pill for three to six months. You might try another one for another three to six months. If that's not working um, in combination with lifestyle um, modifications, then there might be the um, indication to add in metformin or an antiandrogen agent. You would consider adding metformin to the pill uh, in people whose BMI is more than 25 if you've tried the combined pill and lifestyle changes and it hasn't worked. It's most likely to be beneficial in people who have high risk of metabolic disease, so risk factors for diabetes, already known impaired glucose tolerance, or high risk ethnic groups, which Sam's been through before. Um, an antiandrogen agent um, would be added in if hirsutism um, or alopecia is the main problem. If you are starting somebody on antiandrogen, they must be on contraception and they must be counseled that the reason for this is to avoid male fetus under virilization. Do you want to tell us a bit about the use of metformin alone? Yeah, metformin in addition to uh, lifestyle uh, uh, changes uh, is an important component of managing anybody with PCOS where you're just your initial uh, lifestyle changes um, and basic treatments haven't been successful. So metformin shouldn't be relied on kind of as the kind of a, a last line or wait until they have diabetes or impaired glucose tolerance, uh, but also doesn't need to be used immediately at diagnosis. It comes sits somewhere in the middle. So I think anybody who is struggling at follow-up to achieve the lifestyle changes um, should really be considered for metformin. So anybody who's at really at increased uh, risk for metabolic outcomes such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, or uh, endometrial uh, cancer, uh, or with uh, BMI over 25, uh, should be considered for metformin. Uh, and this includes uh, adolescents with a clear diagnosis of PCOS uh, or with uh, other high risk factors. Uh, when starting up, you need to consider adverse side effects. So GI side effects are the most common, and it's a real shame for somebody who tries a medication that would be beneficial for them but kind of swears off it initially because it hasn't they haven't been counseled properly about starting it and haven't started it appropriately so 
it suggests it's important to mention the GI side effects, mention that they are dose dependent and they are self-limiting, right? This means that your body has to get used to it and it will often go away, so please persist. Start low and go slow, so start um, at 500 milligrams um, and increase one to two weekly. So you might start with uh, five milli 500 milligrams once a day um, and just do that for a week to two before slowly bumping it up to BD and then uh, yeah, increase as needed. Um, and there are just a few, obviously, just in terms of talking about pharmacological treatments, antiandrogens can be used uh, by themselves to treat hirsutism and alopecia if the combined pill uh, is contraindicated or not well tolerated. But um, as previously mentioned, if this is the only medication they are on, they still must be on contraception. Um, there are no specific doses or types of antiandrogens that can be recommended by this guideline due to inadequate evidence. Anti-obesity pharmacological agents uh, can also be tried after a really good go at lifestyle interventions. This is outside the realms of what I know to talk about, but things to be considered are cost, contraindication, side effects, regulatory status um, is often changing, as well as variable availability. If women are on anti-obesity medications, pregnancy must be avoided. Um, and it depends on the medication, but sometimes for some months after. And so that should be discussed as well. All right. And on to algorithm five. So the last page of, well, nearly the last page of the guideline. Screening, diagnostic assessment and management of infertility, which is often, um, as Sam said earlier, what women hear when they hear about a diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome. The main cause of infertility in polycystic ovarian syndrome is usually ovulation disturbance, and so what we're going to talk about assumes this is the only cause. If this is your exam, do not assume this is the only cause. This is a mistake I made. Um, so obviously if people, if a couple is having difficulty with primary or secondary infertility, you would do the full workup. Um, however, with polycystic ovarian syndrome, as one of the diagnostic criteria, an ovulation is common. The reason anovulation is common is because of insulin resistance um, and increased bioavailability of the free androgens. Uh, this causes premature follicular atresia and then anovulation. So this is why insulin sensitizing medications can be used in ovulation induction. If you have less insulin resistance or more insulin sensitization, you are more likely to ovulate. We know that for uh, women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, 50% of them will conceive with ovulation induction and the rest will need further assisted reproductive technology. That's presumably 50% of women with PCOS and... And anovulatory fertility, fertility, yeah. Reduced fertility, yeah. So obviously, as I mentioned before, a lot of women with PCOS will go on to have spontaneous pregnancies. Mm. So they need to be aware that that it's still a possibility. <laughs> and be on contraception, right, Sam? Yeah, 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 that's it. Uh, so when talking about fertility, um, uh, you need to and assess, assess the factors uh, that need to be optimized. So think about blood sugar control, weight and BMI. Um, uh, weight loss uh, improves your natural uh, fecundity and will assist with, con with conception. Uh, and bariatric surgery can be considered second line. Uh, optimize blood pressure control, stop smoking, drink less alcohol, do diet and exercise, improve your life so sleep mental health emotional and sexual health and consider um, your pre-pregnancy uh, supplementation with folic acid iodine and vitamin d uh, through a multivitamin mm -hmm. 
see earlier podcasts. <laughs> yes. Um, with polycystic ovarian syndrome, there are increased risks of some adverse maternal and fetal outcomes. Um, so monitoring during pregnancy is important. Um, there is a longer time to conception, poor embryo development, um, reduced embryo implantation rates, an increased risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, uh, and ectopic pregnancy. Once pregnant and established, there's an increased risk of gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, preterm birth, um, and a small increase in risk of stillbirth. So when talking about ovulation induction, the general principles are that this is off-label use and women need to know about the evidence for it, discuss any concerns and appropriate side effects. You must exclude pregnancy prior to ovulation induction, um, as with any woman who has had a prolonged amenorrhea. An unsuccessful prolonged use should be avoided. There is uh, not a significant increase in success rates uh, with prolonged use. So gen- the general rule is try something for six months, then move on to the next step. What's the first step? <laughs> oh, what? What's the first step? <laughs> Ovulation induction. What are you going to oh, do? Exclude pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> then let result would be your first line agent. Yeah. Um, it works by, it's an aromatase inhibitor. It stops the conversion of androgens to estrogens, therefore giving reduced negative feedback, increased FSH secretion, and stimulating follicle development. Uh, it's first line. It improves ovulation, pregnancy, and live birth rates. Uh, it is the agent most likely to um, stimulate ovulation and result in a live birth um, as compared with clomiphene. And it's less likely to have uh, failure to ovulate than clomiphene. There also appears to be a risk, a lower risk of multiple pregnancy as compared with clomiphene. The side effects are GI disturbance, hot flushes, headaches, back pain, fatigue, and dizziness. Um, and women should know that there's no increase in the risk of fetal malformation. So letrozole is your first line. Just a second line: clomiphene citrate and metformin. Clomiphene is a serum. Uh, so it has uh, estrogenic and anti-estrogenic properties. It has effects on the hypothalamus, the pituitary, uh, the ovary, as well as the endometrium. Uh, clomiphene should effectively be considered a second line because of the higher risk of multiple pregnancy. Uh, the guideline mentions 5 to 7% for twins, 0.3% uh, for of triplets. There's also an increased risk of OHSS, of about 1%. Um, it can be used... Uh, either alone or in combination with metformin. I would tend to think that unless you had a real good reason not to use metformin, um, it's probably worth uh, using uh, to improve your live birth rates. Um, and it mentions to especially uh, consider this uh, in women with obesity uh, or in those women who are becoming clomiphene resistant. Where ovulation induction uh, has not been successful, uh, and that would usually mean three to six cycles, so basically up to kind of roughly six months. And if you haven't achieved pregnancy at that stage, um, you should definitely be considering uh, moving on to second-line agents. So that would be with gonadotrophins through a fertility specialist, and alternatively, uh, surgery, so laparoscopic ovarian drilling, or IVF. I think it's probably outside the scope of this guideline and this podcast to go into too much more detail about um, assisted reproductive, further assisted reproductive technology, aside from 
with using gonadotrophins, there are multiple different regimes, regimes, regimens that can be used. Um, You would consider adding in metformin in that time as well. Um, And this is going to be something that is going to vary depending on availability um, and the expertise in the area. There should be ultrasound monitoring. This is not something that should be used without ultrasound monitoring. Um, and there are there isn't again a risk of multiple pregnancy. Um, and oh, yeah. Um, it's a bit more invasive um, and higher intensity for the women um, because there are daily in- injections and the ultrasound monitoring that we've discussed. And it's increased cost either for the, the couple or for the country, depending on how it's funded. Laparoscopic ovarian drilling is a, an alternative second line um, and would usually be considered if lap- laparoscopy is indicated for another reason. Um, an example of this would be in workup for infertility uh, when there is known anovulatory infertility um, and in laparoscopy is being done to look for um, tubal patency or endometriosis, for example. Um, ovarian drilling can be considered. It's been used for a long time, but the technique has never been standardised by any stretch, by the look of it, whether you're talking about the energy source, number of punctures, dose and duration per puncture, whether you should do one or both ovaries. Based on limited studies, three to six punctures per ovary at 40 watts of coagulate current for four seconds per puncture seems reasonable. And that's as per up to date. The thing that I would mention to women in particular with ovarian drilling is the fact that you are on purpose putting holes in the ovaries. And so for women who are wanting pregnancy, there's always a risk of destruction of ovarian tissue and then the inability to form follicles or to um, cause so much injury that oophorectomy is is needed. Uh, And they need to be carefully counseled around that as well as other surgical risks like periodontal adhesion formation. Um, once this is done, though, there is no further no need for ongoing monitoring, um, and there is a lower background, a lo- sorry, a lower risk of multiples and OHSS compared with other forms of ovulation induction. Um, so, in resource limited settings, which is a weird thing to think about when you're talking about laparoscopic surgery, but this might be um, a way to sort of do something and then you know see your good luck. And then very briefly, IVF is what you would do if there were other forms of other causes of infertility with the couple um it is a third line as it has high costs um and but it's effective and single embryo transfer um allows the risk of multiple pregnancy to be minimized um again there's lots of different ways you can use fresh or frozen consider elective freezing of embryos um lots of different protocols Metformin can be added as an adjunct as well, um, but that is something that would be discussed with the fertility specialist at the time. Bariatric surgery is experimental for the purpose of having a healthy baby. Um, the risk to benefit ratios at the moment are too uncertain to advocate. Uh, bariatric surgery is obviously not experimental for the purposes of weight loss within sort of strict criteria, um, but women who are wanting to undergo bariatric surgery to be able to have a baby um, should be told that weight loss will help 
But we know that bariatric surgery does come with its own set of perinatal risks like um, SGA, preterm labor, um, and possibly increased infant mortality. But on the flip side, A, um, they're possibly, probably more likely to get pregnant, um, and there's a reduction in GDM as well. The recommendation is that pregnancy is avoided for 12 months following the surgery while um, they are in the state of rapid weight loss. Um, so and to allow sort of make sure absorption of all the different vitamins and minerals are back to normal um, that would then be a pregnancy that is higher risk and should involve MDT and dietitian input bariatric surgery needs to be considered in anybody with obesity mm. who's not been successful with initial lifestyle uh, measures um, I mean obesity is a risk factor for almost every medical problem you can think of um, including both fertility and pregnancy problems. Um, and so while it is a major undertaking and has its own risks, it's an option that patients should at least be uh, presented with. Um, Absolutely. And will hopefully become uh, more and more accessible uh, over time. Um, that will, of course, depend on the success of anti-obesity agents, which is probably our, just our last point to go through. Um, just since we've been in med school, these have become a lot more popular and more and more of them are funded in New Zealand. Um, so I kind of, I think they really need to be prescribed by um, people who are familiar with their use because the podcasts I've listened to, at least trying to understand them, they certainly all have their pros and cons. Um, some of them are, can be quite effective, but they they really just depend on your other medical conditions um, and they need to be titrated and adjusted with other other medic medications. So I wouldn't be using them, uh, prescribing them myself, uh, but just to know that these really are on the rise um, and may well be uh, really helpful. And it's kind of like any, any condition, really. You want to be in a state of maintenance and quiescence. So um, however you reach that goal weight, but then to maintain that weight and be off teratogenic medications pre-pregnancy is probably the main thing. All right, well, we're well past the hour mark, <laughs> so we will finish with a summary. So as you can see, it's taken more than an hour just to talk through a summary <laughs> of this guideline. So what can you actually do with a patient in the short period of time you have with them? So first, confirm the diagnosis. Consider the Rotterdam criteria. Don't overdiagnose and also don't miss it. And also consider other causes of hyperandrogenism. So that's if there's strong clinical features or really high testosterone. You know, don't forget tumors and other metabolic problems. And then uh, explain the diagnosis uh, to uh, the patient um, along with the risks. Uh, this should definitely be with uh, written information uh, because it's going to be information overload. But so I think of it as kind of five points. So you've got your cardiovascular uh, risks, uh, including uh, sleep apnea, uh, diabetes, endometrial cancer, your mental health and uh, body dysphoria, and fertility. So talk through those as the, um, you know, the risks and uh, consequences of uh, PCO, uh, PCOS. Um, but make sure it's clear that you're not making the diagnosis of these problems, um, especially infertility. And then come up with a management plan. So provide written information, 
uh, address lifestyle. And so probably this, these two parts are the most important part of your initial consultation. Um, you know, use your MDT, provide resources um, and motivation and information to empower the patient to uh, make use of this information and you know, uh, address the risks uh, in a conservative way. Uh, and then, you know, certainly add on the uh, combined oral contraceptive pill for management of basically any menstrual disturbance uh, problems or for contraception and also for endometrial protection if you're not having a period uh, every 90 days or having less than eight a year. Uh, consider metformin uh, next, probably in your next consultation, if those initial uh, measures aren't, um, or those initial goals aren't being met. Uh, always discuss fertility, you know, better to get on with things uh, early and you know, use that as a motivating factor to achieve goals and follow up and ensure that those goals are being met. So that was probably information overload as well. Um, but thank you very much for listening. Please do send through any feedback that you have uh, and we'll see you next time.